This is Incredible Stories Podcast, Episode 44, The Plot to Overthrow the U.S. Government. Well, hello again, everyone. It's time for another Incredible Stories podcast. I'm Josh Viola, your obstreperous host. And thanks for being here. Remember to share the show if you like it. Even if you don't like it, share it. Maybe someone else will like it. And feel free to send me a show idea, haiku, or just general comment at contact at IncredibleStoriesPodcast.com. But let's get started. Through history, there are many rebellions, coups, and schemes that involve overthrowing governments. You probably don't think it would happen in a country like the United States, although the U.S. was founded on rebellion and has had its share of rebellions early on in its history. Those are perhaps an episode for themselves, but today I want to focus on a political conspiracy that didn't happen, but it very much was planned. This was known as the Business Plot of 1933 and involved business leaders, Marine Corps legends, the overthrow of President Franklin Roosevelt, and cover-ups. Here's what I know. In 1933, the United States was in the midst of the Great Depression, which was a time period of great economic downtime, to put it mildly. The economy was struggling to get going, Millions of people were out of work, and somewhere around the tune of 25% of the country was unemployed. A time of hardship for many. So, this should give you an idea of the unease and anxiety that existed in the country around this time. So, the Great Depression started around 1929 and lasted about 10 years. But let me back up a year to 1932, to an incident involving World War I veterans. You see, in July of 1932, some 40,000 people made of World War I veterans, their families, and supporters marched on Washington and set up camp. This group was to be known as the Bonus Army. Why? Well, it stemmed from the reason why they were marching. The World War I vets were promised bonuses for their service in World War I. And those bonuses were promised to be issued between 1925 and 1945. But as it was the Great Depression and many of these soldiers were out of work, they thought the bonuses weren't coming soon enough. And they probably were justified in this. I mean, desperate times, right? So Congress tried to pass a bill moving up the payment date for the bonuses on June 15, 1932. But the bill didn't pass. So the Bonus Army says, okay, we march. And on July 28th, they march and camp out in their tents in Washington for a few days. And they get an encouraging visit from uber popular and prominent Marine Corps legend, retired Major General Smedley freaking Butler. Who was he? Well, let me sidetrack you for a minute. This guy served in the Marines for 34 years and saw action in the Philippine-American War. Central America, China for the Boxer Rebellion, the Spanish-American War, and the Banana Wars, which essentially the U.S. used the military as a giant business police force protecting American interests in the Central American and Caribbean regions, particularly the United Fruit Company. This was a complicated series of interventions, so I won't get into that here, but just know Smedley was a battle-hardened badass. 
In fact, during one of his campaigns in Honduras, he got the nickname Old Gimlet Eye. What is a gimlet? Well, let me sidetrack you from this sidetrack for a minute. A gimlet is several things. It can be a drink made from gin or vodka and lime juice, but this didn't exist until around the 1920s, I think, although it looks delicious. I'll put a link to the recipe in the show notes. But a gimlet is also a small tool that is used to bore holes in things. It kind of looks like a corkscrew bottle opener. But the nickname Old Gimlet Eye that Smedley received was because he had a steely look of determination that would penetrate your soul. He was also awarded the Medal of Honor. Twice! And at the time of his death in 1940, he was the most decorated Marine until Chesty Puller came along. I've mentioned him before. But again, Smedley, war-hardened, badass, much beloved and respected by the troops. Okay, back to the bonus army. So Smedley shows up and the crowd loves it. But President Hoover at the time did not love it and essentially gave orders to the military to remove the protesters. Now, involved in this part is going to be renowned military heroes General Douglas MacArthur, Major George S. Patton, and Major Dwight D. Eisenhower. You know all these guys. If you don't, shame on you. Okay, so Hoover says after about 10 days, it's time for the protest to move along and told Patrick J. Hurley, the Secretary of War, what we now call the Secretary of Defense, to disperse the protesters. So the Sec of War says okay and sends in tanks, cavalry, and infantry to push them out of D.C. There were some scuffles and two veterans end up getting shot and died. Now, at this time, the fear from the military was that the bonus army was a threat to the president and had some serious communist undertones swimming in it. So the bonus army still wasn't leaving, so Hoover tells MacArthur to take care of it, but to let the protesters disperse organically. So MacArthur eventually gets Patton to show up with the 3rd Cavalry and crosses the Memorial Bridge, forcing the protesters away and ignoring orders to let them disperse naturally. MacArthur commands that the protesters be pushed back over the Anacostia Bridge and continue the movement to remove the bonus army, ignoring Hoover's orders to stop. MacArthur claimed the crowd was attempting to overthrow the government. So, 55 veterans were injured and over 130 were arrested. Oh, Eisenhower at this time was one of MacArthur's junior aides and was pretty much wanting MacArthur to be away from the incident, insisting that it was no place for chief of staff. He was basically there to be the blame guy if it went south. But there wasn't much fallout from this incident. Aside from it made Hoover look bad, which probably contributed to him being defeated by Roosevelt in the 1932 presidential election. Now, initially, Roosevelt was against the bonuses being signed out earlier, but once he was president in 1933, the protests entered a second phase and Roosevelt's handling of the situation was different than Hoover's. He provided the bonus army protesters with a camp and gave them food, which in the Great Depression, this was a big plus. Now, the bonuses didn't get paid out right away, and the protesters would have to wait until 1936 for the approximate $2 billion payout. But in the meantime, Roosevelt did something else. 
Now, FDR was a bit more hmm, socialist-leaning, and remember, it was the Great Depression, so he issued an executive order that allowed for 24,000 veterans to enter the Civilian Conservative Corps, which was designed to put young American men back to work. He exempted them from requirements of having to be unmarried and under the age of 25. So this fell under his New Deal plan, which were federal works programs and such. The New Deal was looked at by those who were against it as a socialist type of government spending that would put the U.S. further into debt and as something that would be bad for business growth. So you have this new president in promising the government would create jobs for people and a proponent of big government, which meant more control and more control was something that frightened many people and many prominent businessmen. Also, Roosevelt made it illegal to have gold in the form of coins, bullion, and gold certificates in 1933 via Executive Order 6102. Now, this plays into the gold standard monetary system which ties economic units to the quantity of gold. Basically, gold backed our money back then, but I don't want to dive into the rabbit hole of monetary policy and theories. Just know that this upset a lot of people who viewed what Roosevelt was doing as being largely anti-capitalism. So all this set the groundwork for what is known as the business plot. In FDR's first 100 days, some of the richest businessmen were panicked about Roosevelt's intention of massive wealth redistribution, and to stop this, the businessmen thought a coup was in order to remove Roosevelt. And who were these businessmen? Well, allegedly, only some of the biggest tycoons in American business history, such as Areni DuPont, former president of DuPont and head of the DuPont Trust, private banker Grayson Murphy, director of Goodyear, Bethlehem Steel, and a group of J.P. Morgan banks, Gerald McGuire, who worked as a bond salesman for Robert Clark, another member of this plot who was one of the richest bankers on Wall Street and an heir to the Singer sewing machine fortune, but McGuire was a former commander of the Connecticut American Legion. William Doyle, another member, was also a former state commander of the American Legion, Additionally, former Democratic presidential candidate and a senior attorney for J.P. Morgan, John Davis, former governor of New York, Roosevelt rival, and a co-director of the American Liberty League, Al Smith, John J. Raskob, who was also vice president of finance for DuPont and General Motors, and officer and a former chairman of the Democratic National Committee. There were more, but these guys give you a good idea of who was involved. Their wealth was in the hundreds of millions of dollars in money back then. But what these rich people needed was some muscle, and they needed someone with military expertise to lead their privately financed army. And remember, there were a lot of unemployed veterans looking for work. But the conspirators tasked American Legion alumni, McGuire and Doyle, to get Smedley Butler on board with commanding their army. Now, of course, they couldn't come right out and say it, Hey, Butler, you want to be head of our army to overthrow the U.S. government? No, they had to be a bit more subtle. In their first meeting, they asked Butler to simply run for the national commander of the American Legion. Oh, what is the American Legion? I've mentioned it a few times. You've probably heard its name before and have a peripheral knowledge of it. Simply, it is the largest wartime veteran association in the United States and advocates for veterans who served during wartime. 
So McGuire and Doyle figured Butler loved the veterans because he was at the bonus march protests and him being a patriot, he would be open to being the head of such a prestigious veterans organization. So a few days later, Butler said, you know what, tell me more. And the three had a second meeting. McGuire and Doyle told Butler that they would love him to speak at the next convention and that they would plant 200 to 300 legionnaires at the convention to kind of make a show and a general racket. Then the plan was to have Butler come out of the audience and make a speech. So Butler was like, okay, so far so good. Great! So McGuire said, don't worry about anything. We have a speech here. You can talk about some things. Just peruse it at your leisure. So they left the speech with Butler and left. And what was in the speech? Well, if read at convention, I imagine it would have gone something like this. Good evening, good evening. First, I'd like to thank the American Legion for inviting me to speak, and my generous host, McGuire and Doyle. I'm Smedley Butler, former general in the United States Marine Corps. I would appreciate your support for National Commander of the American Legion. But you know, I want to talk about something very near and dear to my heart, and that is the treatment of the U.S. veterans. As you know, I was at the bonus marches recently advocating for the government to keep its promise and pay our deserving and honorable veterans for their service. I would like to urge the American Legion to adopt at this convention a resolution calling for the United States to return to the gold standard. It is imperative that this be done so when the veterans are paid their promised bonus monies, it will have the full value and confidence that is backed by gold and not just some worthless promise papers. If your sacrifices aren't worth gold to the U.S. government, then the U.S. government doesn't find any worth in you. Thank you. Good night. Old Gimlet Eye out! So, you see, the speech insisted on the gold standard return, which kind of got old Smedley a bit suspicious. It seemed like an odd demand to make at the American Legion. But remember, the Legion was pretty powerful politically. The next meeting, McGuire visited Butler by himself and pretty much told him that Grayson Murphy underwrote the whole New York chapter of the American Legion and kind of highlighted the wealth behind the men behind the American Legion. They said, Smedley, don't worry about the money. We got friends with deep pockets. But Butler declined to make the speech. So a few months after the first meeting, a fourth meeting was scheduled between McGuire and Butler and yet another meeting with Robert Clark was initiated. Clark and Butler had served together in China during the Boxer Rebellion, and Clark was lauded as being one of the heirs to the Singer sewing machine fortune. Basically, all this time was used to feel out Butler and get him comfortable with the power brokers behind the business plot. So, McGuire and Butler corresponded chumly via letters from time to time, and in 1934, in August, McGuire meets with Butler a final time. And this meeting, McGuire now lays the cards out on the table and asks Butler if he would like to run a new veterans organization and lead a coup to overthrow the president. So, Smedley was like, um, okay, bro, let me just uh, think about this. So, then Smedley goes and tells his former assistant, Paul Comley French, who was now a reporter, to go talk to McGuire and see if he wasn't hearing things incorrectly. So, French gets a meeting with McGuire, and French said McGuire told him, quote, 
We need a fascist government in this country to save the nation from the communists who want to tear it down and wreck all what we have built in America. The only men who have the patriotism to do it are the soldiers and Smedley Butler is the ideal leader. He could organize one million men overnight." Unquote. So Smedley then tells his friend James Van Zandt, national commander of the Veterans of Foreign Wars, another veteran organization, that some conspirators will be contacting him trying to get him to lead a coup. You see, Smedley wasn't the only military person they were trying to get on board with this. They are going to need more, obviously, than just one. Now, it seems Smedley went this route to kind of gather evidence, you know, to back up what was going on. So I'm not sure who in Congress got wind of it, but once they heard about this plot, they investigated through the McCormack-Dickstein Committee. They called Butler to testify, as well as McGuire and others, and Butler said McGuire attempted to get him to lead a 500,000-man army to DC. McGuire, of course, denied this. Now, Butler was a supporter of FDR and an outspoken critic of capitalism. No doubt a lot of his experience during the Banana Wars left a bad taste in his mouth of it. But he did say he was a patriot and wanted to preserve democracy and participating in the business plot would be treason. So what was the conclusion of the committee? Well, let me just read the final report for you. Quote, in the last few weeks of the committee's official life, it received evidence showing that certain persons had made an attempt to establish a fascist organization in this country. No evidence was presented and this committee had none to show a connection between this effort and any fascist activity of any European country. There is no question that these attempts were discussed, were planned, and might have been placed in execution when and if the financial backers deemed it expedient." Unquote. So to paraphrase, they essentially said, yeah, there was a plot to overthrow the government as testified, so what happened next? Surely someone was thrown in prison or some serious consequences happened. Nope. Apparently, Congress was happy to just sweep this under the rug. I guess that makes sense as the mega-millionaires were the ones financing election campaigns and hey, money talks. But soon after, the spin doctors got to work and the New York Times wrote that the story Butler was telling was just a big hoax with not a lot of teeth behind it. General MacArthur, who was allegedly the backup plan to Butler, said it was the best laugh story of the year. And many other organizations did the same thing. Hmm, media downplaying a counter-running narrative as laughable? Some things never change. But even the mayor of New York, Mayor LaGuardia, laughed it off as just some party joke that was told to Butler and he took it to be more meaningful than it was. And that's the story of the business plot to overthrow the US government, and now you know what I know. It's crazy to think that a plot like this would get developed in the United States. But it's almost equally crazy that Congress would just pretty much ignore it after they concluded it to be true. But I think you'll find that there is one truth out there. When politics and political careers are involved, politicians are more than willing to look the other way in exchange for considerable donations. Wink! It is debatable on whether or not this plot would have or even could have been executed and just how deep did it go. Well, maybe that was another factor in why Congress didn't want to dive deeper into it, and why the media was so quick to dismiss it. 
Maybe the powers that were didn't want to pull on that thread and unravel the entire sweater. You see, there might have been a lot more involvement than what we know on the surface. But now for something you would love to have a sweater made out of. A haiku! You are smart and rich. Forgive me for informing. Your plot is showing. And that's all the time this week, guys. I do have an administrative note. Most likely there won't be an episode next week. But don't worry, the week after there will. And we have quite an archive for you to check out. So make sure to go check out our main site for other stories on IncredibleStoriesPodcast.com. Send me an email or haiku. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at IncredPod. Rate us on iTunes and peep us out on YouTube and Stitcher. For Incredible Stories Podcast, I'm Josh. And remember, the journey of a thousand tales begins with the first word. Get